Welcome to the Archive Room podcast, stories of Manx life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. Manx Radio. Faster my Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. Music is and always has been a huge part of island life. In our programme last week, we began the story of a man whose name is still, to this day, legendary in the island's music world. It's Douglas Buxton, or DB as he was affectionately known. Now we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation between Dougie Buxton and Bernie Quayle, as Bernie finds out more about Dougie's early life, which in its own way is as fascinating as his career. Douglas Buxton was born in 1902 into a family with a great tradition in the theatre and especially in seaside entertainment, the world of the Pierrots. I was born in 1902 on the Crescent Promenade where the Crescent Cinema is at present and it was called Glen Lyon. We were there for a few years and then we started the Pierrots, and eventually the house became a place for the Pierrots to live. They they all lived there in that house. And uh, then we, we left there and went up uh, to a house in Victoria Road. And my dad had a pretty hard time when he first came here. He started the Pierrots on the... Uh, by where the Derby Castle is now, on the bandstand there. And, of course, it was rather a thorn in the side of the palace in Derby Castle. And the Palace and Derby Castle did all they could to uh, stop it, you see. They, uh, and, of course, they had lots of friends in the council and uh, they were going to stop the Pierrots. They managed to form an injunction and stop the Pierrots. And uh, they had to leave. Right across the front page of the Isle of Man Times was the Pierrots ousted, you see. So uh, right opposite, Henry Bloom Noble... His house was there, and he used to listen to the Pierrots. And when he saw this in the paper, he called for my dad to go and see him, and he was in bed, he was he was ill at the time, and he said, uh, I see they've got rid of you at last. Yeah, and my dad said, yes, I'm afraid they have. He says, well, look, he said, I have a piece of property in the centre of the promenade. He says, if it's any good to you, it's yours. So... My dad went and saw this piece of ground. There was nothing. There was the chair or anything. But from uh, St Matthew's Church, they said, well, we can lend you some forms. They got some boards, and uh, the Pierrots were still on it by the memorial. My dad went on to the bandstand, and the, he was very popular with the visitors. There used to be crowds used to round about there. And uh, he... Uh, he said, I suppose you've noticed all this. They all said, shame, shame, shame. He said, well, I'll tell you, we shall be opening tonight. He said, we've no seats, we've nothing, but we shall be opening tonight there. It was in a field, and the vicar of St Matthew's Church, he was very friendly, and next day he said, look, we've got some forms there, and if they're any good to you, we'll send them along. And that's exactly how, how he started at the Crescent. 
there, there was this skating rink and then the pierrots were alongside of that, you see. And then next to that was what they called the life targets. It was like a, a, a shooting range, but it was a big, big uh, cinema screen. And uh, you went onto this range and uh, it showed you pictures of uh, lions and tigers in the, in the wild, you know. And as you shot, the, the picture stopped and it, could, it showed you where, where you'd hit, you know, and then it went on. But it was, it was arranged by two massive scrolls of paper, one coming down, another one going across, you see. And as it stopped, you saw the hole. And then when it stopped, the, each one moved on and the hole was, was hidden, you see. But it was called the Live Targets. And then, as I say, the Piero village was next to them. And uh, in those days, the Piero's, they had to be able to sing, and they also had to be able to, to play an instrument. So you had eight or ten Piero's who could all play sort of violins and trumpets or something like that, so they used to have their own little band as well, you see. I was a, a lad of about, it would be about, um, let's see, before the war, about 1912. We had a man, Charles Russell, his name was, and uh, he was a, a man who used to do what we call paper tearing. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but we and I used to watch him. And, uh, and of course, I was there, and I used to sell programs. We used to have what they call lucky programs, penny each, you know. And they, I was going around selling programs, and I used to watch this man, watch him. And then I found out how to do it. And I found that I could do this, you see. I mean, anyway, it finished up with me in a little Piero costume, standing by the side of him and doing these, these uh, things the same as he was doing, you know. We did have a man named Charlie, Charlie Harvey, and he was known as a king of concert party comedians. And uh, he started in London and all the big shows on the plays and that sort of thing. And then he, he came to the Piero's and he finished his life as a, as a Piero. Charlie Harvey, he was, a, he was a very, very great name. We're in the archive room this week with music legend Douglas Buxton, listening as he shares with Bernie Quayle some fascinating stories from his own youth, when the entertainment legend title seems to perfectly fit Dougie's father, Fred Buxton. Dougie takes up the story now at the outbreak of the First World War. In 1914, Fred Buxton's Piero shows are thriving and Dougie is a boy of 12. We come to 1914. Suddenly that when the war came, everything stopped as far as Piero's and Joe was concerned. And my dad, he had three children and wife. He was suddenly out of the job. But he was keen enough. He, got, he went straight to uh, Manchester and uh, he was in pantomime at the Opera House in Manchester. And uh, the following year, he took three theatres in England, one in Featherstone, another one in Shirebrook, and another one in, in Ripley. And he ran pictures. And uh, then we took over the, uh, the Villa Marina in about 1916. He took the, the, the Villa Marina and uh, opened on, a, on a, a Sunday afternoon. And uh, Dad was a very, very forthright man. 
His staff used to think he was wonderful, a wonderful man. We, as the family, were a bit afraid of him. We, we didn't see very much of him. And I can always remember, it would be in 1916, I would be about 14, Sunday afternoon, we're having our dinner. And uh, my dad said, you come down to Villa Marina with me this afternoon. Yes, Dad. We're walking down Murray's Road. He said, I'm putting you in the pay box. So DV was in the pay box from then on. And uh, I had to uh, see all the people in. And we, we had a little orchestra. And a man named Poulter was the conductor. And we ran a band on the Sunday afternoon. And then we ran dancing in, in the hall at nights. And uh, DV, of course, was always in the pay box. Uh, from 14, I uh, really left school. I used to be at school in the morning, in the pay box in the afternoon, in the pay box at, at night. I can remember one one year, it would be in about 1917, they came over to, to do the, uh, the the picture of Hall Keynes, the Manxman, and the, all the people came over, the, uh, the artists, and uh, they used to come into the villa to the, to the dancing, of course, my dad got to know them all, you see. And he said, uh, now don't forget, I want the first uh, showing of the picture, the Manxman. He said, oh yes, right oh. So they went off, and uh, he hadn't heard from them for uh, a few months. And he wired them in London, hadn't heard any more about uh, this first showing of the, of the Manxman. They wrote back and said, surely you don't expect to be able to put on a big picture like this. He said, this will go on in London. That will be shown in London. Dad wired away, offer you £200 for the, uh, the first performance of the Manxman. Now, you hired a picture for about three days, and the sum would be about 10 or 12 pounds. So we say 20 pounds for, for a week. He'd offered them 200 pounds for the first production. He got it. So he had the first production of the, of the Manxman. And uh, we ran it, we ran a, a matinee in the morning, a matinee in the afternoon, two shows at night, and DB was in the pay box. And uh, in between, after I'd got the crowd in in the afternoon, then go down and open the grounds in the afternoon. And then at night, I'd open the pay box for the first performance and back again for the half past eight show. <laughs> Where was it shown? Was it in the Villa Marina? In the Villa Marina, yes. Because it makes me laugh when you think that, that the pay boxes they have now and DB did the whole lot, you know. And, uh, so the world premiere of the film The Manxman was in the was Villa Marina. In the Villa Marina, that's right. And then we used to run the, the dancing. And uh, I've seen during the war as many as 3,000 people used to come in at a shilling a head, the bother time, you know. And we used to run, run fancy dress carnivals at least a hundred fancy dresses in the middle of the war, you know. A lot of the soldiers from the camps used to come. And uh, Now we're speaking about World War I, 1420. Oh, yes, yes, this is the First World War. And then my dad, he, he went away and he had the, the pantomimes. He was sort of building up all the time from nothing, you see. And uh, then in 1918, he bought the, the Grand Theatre in Victoria Street. Do you remember the Grand Theatre? He bought that and it had been uh, empty for a number of years. So we bought that and he took all the inside out of the place, all reseated, all electric light, stage lighting was all modernised. We opened the Grand Theatre 
uh, after it had been refurbished with this big London company, the Bell of New York. I can still remember it to this day. The man who took the uh, the major domo, he sang. Uh, for in the field of modern endeavour, you know, for in the field of moral endeavour, no competitors can shake a stick at us. Six foot three and a half, this man was. He was marvellous. And then we had a little, there was a little French girl, and, and she sang A la belle parisienne. It was packed, absolutely packed out. And then from then on, we, we ran varieties. I can remember we'd queues from the the Grand Theatre right down as far as Coops, the tobacconist, on one side, and on the other side, right up past the Yates's Wine Lodge, and we used to run the varieties twice a week. The voice of D.B., Douglas Buxton, talking about growing up in the world of entertainment created by his father, Fred Buxton. But with the end of the First World War came the end of that particular entertainment world. Fred Buxton became seriously ill and died in 1918, aged just 52. From having so much to do in the family business, this left 16-year-old Douglas at a loose end. The then manager of the Villa Marina, Noah Moore, suggested that Douglas should enter the Guild, the prestigious Manx Music Festival. So this young man, who'd never before considered himself a singer and had a repertoire of just one song, entered the Guild, won his class and was identified by the adjudicator as having exceptional talent. This led to formal training at the Royal College of Music in Manchester, but after his return to the island a few years later, it became evident that teaching rather than singing was becoming Douglas Buxton's forte. And I suppose there's always going to be one outstanding pupil. One day, a little girl came to see me. She'd be about 16. She said, I'd like to learn singing. She says, I've only got two guineas. She said, so if it's any more than that, she says, I can't come. So she came in and I heard her voice. She had a nice girl's voice. She went in for the, in the, the girl's solo and said quite nicely. At 18, I put her in for the open soprano and uh, she won. And then she went into the uh, special soprano. On her second appearance, she won the special soprano and had to sing for the Cleveland Medal. And uh, that year, it was held in the, the Palace Ballroom, and that night, the, the Palace Ballroom was packed. There must have been 7,000 people in it. The adjudicator, at the end of the competition, said, now, I'd like to hear two of these singers again, the mezzo first, and then the soprano second. So uh, Maggie Miney was the mezzo. And she sang, if she sang well the first time, by God, she sang well the second. And uh, then the little soprano came on, she was just 21. She came on and sang, and uh, she won. And that was Mona, Mona Klukas, who eventually became my wife. The first to ever win, win the medal at 21, and that record has never, never been beaten. So uh, from then on, Joe Gale was the, the tenor. He brought his cousin, Louis Gale, and his sister, Ella Gale, a contralto. She won eventually. Joe won eventually. And of course, if you remember, Joe Gale was, was, a, was a great, great baritone. Won two or three medals, you know. From then on, my name became quite well known, you see, as, as a teacher. I formed a, a school of music in Ramsey, in Parliament Street, and I had uh, Miss Ridings used to take the violin. Doris Lothian used to take the dancing. 
Miss Ella Gale used to, to take the piano, and I used to take the singing. So we had a, a school of music in Ramsey. We were doing so well. I started being a bit ambitious, and I started taking people to Blackpool. You see, taking these soloists to Blackpool. One day on the Saturday, all the classes were over, but the the choir competitions were on. So Mona and I roamed into the place where the big male voice choir was being held, and I was enraptured. Oh, I thought this is glorious! This these all these male voices. I was taken, I'm afraid. So. I liked it so much that I bought the copy of the, the, the thing that they were singing. And uh, when I got home, some time afterwards, I said, you know, I wouldn't mind starting a male voice choir. A number of my boys, like Archie Crellin and Norman Cacken and a number of them said, well, how about it? Archie said, well, I've got a brother. I work in a garage and my brother's there and he's got three or four pals and they all, we always sing when we're working. So I said, right, gather them all together. So uh, uh, we were running the boarding house in uh, Woodville Terrace then. So I got the boys to all come down and uh, I heard them all sing. I thought, right, you sing top tenor, you sing baritone, you sing bass. And we formed, that's how we formed the choir, you see, with about 17 or 18 of them. So I said, how about I'm going to do at the Guild? You see? So, uh, right, we went in for the Guild. In those days, there were, there were some good, good choirs in the Isle of Man. There was... Uh, Ramsey, male voice, no mores, wanderers. So we decided we'd go in and have a do, you see. And uh, I can always remember we were, we were on at the, I think it was the Gaiety Theatre at that time, and Noah's choir had just been singing, and they were coming down, down the steps. And uh, I met Noah, and as I, my boys were coming up, there were only 18 of them, and he said, where in God's name did you get that bunch from, <laughs> you see? Anyway, we went on and sang. We were bottom, of course, but we weren't downhearted. Next year we went on, and we were third. We, we beat Ramsey. And the third year, we won, and we'd, we'd arrived. In 1940, we won the, the male voice and, and never looked back from, from then on. And that was the real beginning of the, the Londo male voice choir. And how good it is that the Londo male voice choir created by Douglas Buxton should still be flourishing to this very day, having been expertly led for many years by Wendy McDowell and now in the capable hands of Jenny Garrett. And our final musical memory is from Mike Ventry, chatting with David Collister about his famous entertainer father, Johnny Ventro. I'd like to talk to you just a little while about your father, who was quite famous in the Isle of Man, really, wasn't he? He was, in fact, yeah. Um, although, you know, my, my name is Mike Ventry. Actually, my, my father went under the name of Ventro because he, he used to be on the stage as a violinist uh, many, many years ago. And, you know, these stage people, they change their names. He changed his name from Ventry to Ventro for stage purposes only. Yes. But the name actually is Ventry. Now, your father wasn't Tony Ventro. No, Tony was my uncle, my father's brother. My father was Johnny, um, a very well-known man on the Isle of Man. He had bands, and he used to the bands used to play on the ferry boats going across to Douglas Head, and he was a very popular man, there's no doubt about that, and yeah. a wonderful musician. Did you go on the ferry boats? <laughs> yes, I did, yes. Before the war, I was a young boy. I used to spend a lot of time down there. I loved them, and I loved the music. I used to just go back and forward and back and forward, and then... Eventually, I would wander up onto Douglas Head, onto the fairground up there, and uh, 
because the people up there knew me and they would allow me to throw the mops at the tin cans, etc., <laughs> yeah. without paying because they knew me dad and they knew who I was. Mm. And, uh, what it, sort of music would he play then? Would it be like the popular tunes of the time? Yes, all the popular tunes of the time. He was a song plugger, basically. And he could, he could play anything at all. He was a wonderful musician. Lawrence Wright, etc. You know, all, all the people in, in, in town, the music people, used to come to my father with new pieces of music and they would say, Johnny, will you play this for us? Yeah. And he would plug it, of right. course, for a few bob. And that's, that's how he earned his living. And uh, when, when he worked on the, on the ferries then, how was he paid? Was he paid for doing that officially by the ferry owners or, or did he have to rely on uh, the, the tips from the passengers? <laughs> Basically, it was the tips from the passengers. The ferry used to go across the, the headland, and while they were going over, the band used to play, and someone used to go around with a collection box. Mm. And that is, in fact, just the money that was used to pay the band and my father. That's all. There was no, there was no salary in those days. It was just, as you say, tips. So he wasn't going to be earning a huge amount of money, then, was he? Yeah. He did all right. <laughs> <laughs> we managed to live, you know, um, all, all, all year on the money that he earned there. But everyone thought he was a millionaire, you know, because <laughs> he would wander home at night on, on the buses um, with big bags of money and, and all, yeah. it was all pennies and farthings <laughs> and halfpennies. And you had to sit down and I used to sit down and help him to count them. And it was great fun. And, and we used to have a big round table and he used to pour all the money out onto the table. And uh, anything that fell on the floor was mine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was great fun, you know. And yes. You would nudge the table from time to time. <laughs> if you've seen a threepenny bit or something hanging close by, and that used to go in my money box. Right. <laughs> Can you remember how many passengers the ferries would carry roughly? Oh, they would they would hold up to anything about sixty or eighty people. I would yes. think they were quite big. Well, the ferry boats used to go back and forward. One would come from Douglas Head to, to Douglas, and the other would go from the Victoria Pier over to Douglas Head. Yeah. And they would cross in the middle. Continuously through yes, the, the, yes. the day and through the oh, week, yes. seven days a week? Seven days a week throughout the summer, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, wet or fine, ferries would run. Um, but, of course, there wasn't that many people going on them in, in the wet weather. But, you know, a lot of local people in those days who didn't have an awful lot of money for entertainment used to just simply go down onto the Victoria Pier and stand there oh. and listen to the music being played on the ferry boats. Oh, yes. And it was beautiful. Well, be nice, wouldn't it? Oh, it was, it was lovely. Yeah. It was just like going to a band concert. <laughs> and it was free, of course. <laughs> your, your father sounds like a, a sort of generous man, really. He was a lovely man. He was a, he was a, a thorough gentleman. I, I know, OK, he was my dad, and most people say that about their dads, but, you know, I had so much fun with him. He was a... He was a he was a likeable character. He taught me to ride a bike and roller skate, and he taught me to swim. He did all the things a dad should do. You know. He didn't teach you to play the violin, though. <laughs> no, he didn't. He got me playing like, the piano for a little while, but I, I gave that up. I regret that now, of course. I, I, would, I would love to have been able to play an instrument. But, uh, you know, football and you know, young ladies sort of got in the way, and we, we tended not to bother. Yeah. Now, your father was really from Italian extraction, wasn't he? Yes, my grandfather came over to England when he was three years of age. And my father was, in fact, born in Liverpool. So he's a Liverpoolian. And my mum was born in Liverpool also. And they came over here. 
it, it was great because uh, you know, we, we used to do so many things together. I used to go swimming with my father. I used to play chess with him. I used to play snooker with him. We used to go for walks together. He, he would come into my bedroom at midnight when we lived in Palace Road. Um, we had a guest house there. He had a guest house there. And he would come into my bedroom sometimes at midnight when I was fast asleep and he would shake me and say, come on, let's go for a swim down on the promenade. <laughs> and the two of us would run down down, down Palace Road, yeah. dive into the water and, and then uh, come back up again and, and, and then we'd sit down and we'd have an enormous big feed. <laughs> After midnight. It was a wonderful time. He was a wonderful dad. We got on so well. Right. He was really good. What about Uncle Tony then, the, the singer? Well, Tony um, came over to the island and he went for an audition with the Joe Loss Orchestra. Tony was a tenor and they took him on um, and he was in fact the tenor for the Joe Loss Orchestra for quite a number of years. And of course he used to sing in the Villa Marina. The first night he came on, they just announced him as Tony. They didn't give another name, they just said we have a new tenor, his name is Tony. And he came on and he sang very nicely indeed. And uh, after the show, he was seen in the Villa Marina. I think we were having a cup of coffee, him and I. And uh, of course, he looked very much like my father. Yeah. Well, the newspapers had it the following day that it was Tony Ventro. Yeah. So he then went under the name of Ventro. Mm. That's how the name actually stuck in the island. And that ends our present series of visits to the archive room. But there are lots more stories I'll look forward to sharing with you in the future. This six-part series is available for you to listen again at your leisure as podcasts. Go to manxradio.com and search for The Vault. There you'll find all available episodes of the archive room and lots more from the Manx Radio Store of Nostalgia. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you so much for listening. And as promised, it's time for the big reveal. Your nostalgia knowledge is spot on if you said our vintage voice ending each programme is Howard Hampton. So long, you sir. (laughs) 